0: We return to Nehemiah, our study of this book, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse uh, 38, which is the last verse of chapter 9 in the division that takes place in the Hebrew Bible, verse 38 of chapter 9 is actually the first verse of chapter 10. Our English Bibles divided things differently, but you'll see Why? Because verse 38 does form a bridge between the events of chapter 9 and what is about to happen in chapter 10. It's been a few weeks, I realize, since we've been in the book of Nehemiah. I think everyone here has been a part of this study at one point or another. I'm not going to rehash the whole book again this morning, but I do want to set us In the context of where we've just been, particularly the last couple chapters, so you remember chapter 8 was a chapter where God's people hungered for his word. They called on Ezra to bring the book of the law that it might be read to them. They heard God's word and immediately they obeyed God's word. And their obedience took the form of the Feast of Booze, this long forgotten feast that the Lord had told His people to observe. And they immediately went into action and began to celebrate this feast. And then in chapter 9, they confessed. Remember chapter 9, they confessed their sin. God's Word, as they had heard it, had literally humbled them to the dust To the point of sackcloth. To the point of ashes on their head. And yet, they were reminded, even in the midst of recounting their sin and the failings of their forefathers, that God's grace was greater than their sin. And it would always be greater than their sin. That's the backdrop that we have as we come to Nehemiah 9. Verse 38, and then on through chapter 10. I'm going to read beginning there. Follow along. I'd encourage you to do so either in your bulletins or in the insert. Bear with me in the first half, in particular. Listen as I read. This is God's Word. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Suraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkaijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginathon, Baruch, Meshalem, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Henadad, Kadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peliah, Henan, Micah, Rahab, Hashbaiah. Zakur, Sherabiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu. The chiefs of the people Parosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adin, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashim, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebey, Migpiash, Meshalam, Hazir, Mejezebel, Zadok, Jedua, Pelatiah, Henan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Henaniah, Hashub, Helohesh, Pilhi, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabana, Maaseiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Baana. the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the lands bring in goods or any other grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. This is the word of the Lord. Commitment. Ah, the word commitment. We love that word, and yet we hate that word. We love it, I think, because we often like, especially in regards to God. We like something to do. Something to do for God. But we hate it. We hate it at the same time because we so easily and so inevitably, we fail to follow through on our commitments. And so I'm wondering this morning how this passage hits you. Once we got through all those names, how that passage hits you. Are you one who's hearing this passage and you're just relishing at another opportunity to do something for the Lord? To make a commitment to the Lord? To show the Lord that you are worthy of His love? Or do you hear that passage and you just think, ah, uh, not again. You, you think about those New Year's resolutions, although I know people aren't big about those, but you think about those failed commitments of the past two months ago that have, that have already fallen off by the wayside, and you think, oh. See, this passage this morning isn't calling us to either of those attitudes, but it is about you This morning, wherever you are, wherever on that spectrum you find yourself, this passage is about you. It addresses you because it is about commitment. This is a passage about commitment. But it's commitment that is birthed from grace, it is buoyed by grace, it is upheld by grace. And it is secured by grace. And that makes it radically different than both of those ways of of seeing this passage. Either being frustrated at failed commitments or eager to make new commitments for the sake of pleasing the Lord. As I alluded to earlier in chapters 8 and 9, remember what has gone on in the life of God's people. By God's grace, they are becoming acquainted with who they are as God's people. They've become hungry for God's word. They've mourned over their own lack of obedience, and they've lamented that fact. They celebrated the Day of Atonement. And now here they are in chapter 10. Forgiveness is theirs. They've seen the error of their ways. They've confessed their sin. They've gone to the altar of God. Atonement has been made. Forgiveness is theirs. And as one pastor called it, it is this Gospel grammar that is behind chapter 10. And you can't forget that fact. The Gospel grammar of chapters 8 and 9 is behind chapter 10. And it's the same backdrop that we find ourselves in right now as we come to the challenge of chapter 10. Why? Because we have seen again the majesty of God. We have mourned Over our sin. We've rejoiced in the assurance and the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. And now we come to God's claim on our lives with all that, all that singing, all that confessing, all that richness that was the first 50 minutes of our time together. We find ourselves in much the same place Israel did. We find ourselves in much the same place that the Apostle Paul did. As he wrote to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, after extolling the glories of Christ, he says, What? Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Many of you remember this and have memorized this as in view of God's mercy. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And so this is where we begin this morning. In view of God's glorious grace, you've got to find yourself there. If you see that, if you have the Gospel in view, then you're ready to hear chapter 10. You're ready to be challenged with what God challenges His people with in chapter 10. Three things. Three things guide our thinking this morning. Kids, here comes number one. Are you ready? In view of God's mercy, commit yourself to obedience. In view of God's mercy, commit yourself to obedience. Now, this message, of course, in many ways mirrors a message that we've already heard. It mirrors the message of chapter 8, because there God's people, upon hearing God's word, they were moved to respond with obedience. But here we find something a little bit different that is worth exploring. Because here we find God's people not simply being moved to obedience, but making a formal commitment. A formal commitment. And and we can relate to this. We have this kind of thing in our day and age. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to sign your name to a document. That adds a weight. It adds a formality to it that many of us, to be honest, can be uncomfortable with. And so verse 38 of chapter 9 begins, we begin, we make a firm commitment. We make a firm commitment or covenant is what our Bibles say in the ESV. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I dare not go against the translators of the English Standard Version. Covenant is a perfectly acceptable way and a good way to translate what is found there in Hebrew. But literally, if we were to look literally at what is being said here, the people are not just making a firm covenant, they are cutting a firmness. They are cutting... A firmness. Now let's talk about that for just a second. What does it mean that they're cutting a firmness? Now, that's foreign in our heads. Well, let me help it bring, help it come right home. We use this phrase sometimes when we talk about cutting checks, right? We write a check, we cut a check, we sign a document that obligates ourselves to follow through on whatever is on that check. And covenants, when covenants were made in the ancient Near Eastern world, covenants often involved cutting, literal cutting. An animal would be cut, divided, slaughtered, sacrificed, split in two, And those who were making the covenant, those who were making the agreement would walk between the pieces to signify the gravity and the weight of what it is they were promising. We covenant together. And should one of us break this covenant, this is the fate of that one. As the slain animal lay dismembered, so that's what cutting means. Cutting a firmness. How about firmness? The, the word that's translated here in your Bibles as covenant. The common word that the Hebrew Bible uses for covenant is a word berit. And that's not the word used here. And We might wonder why it's not used here. The word that's used here has more to do with faithfulness, with constancy, with Reliability. The people were cutting a firmness. They were cutting a faithfulness. Now, now why is this important? Well, it's important because the, the people are not initiating a new covenant. The people don't have the right to initiate a new covenant with God. No, they're not making a new covenant. What the people of God are doing is they're saying... Amen to the covenant that's already in place. They're reaffirming the gravity of it. The fact that this was cut. That this is firm. The promises of God are true. The curses of God are a reality if we don't follow through. And so they're cutting a firmness and they gather here to literally sign on the dotted line and it begins with the leaders it continues to the priests to the levites and then goes all to all the people all these personal commitments that are made that form one communal face one communal commitment to the lord it's interesting to describe how they describe what they're committing to look at verse 29 it says join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. Now we'll talk about the specific commitments that are made here in the life of God's people, but it's it's very clear that the people as they are committing themselves to faithfulness, as they are cutting a firmness in regards to God and their relationship to Him, it's very clear that God's law in its entirety, in its wholeness, is in view. Not just a specific number of things, even though they do go into specifics. Because four different words are used here. Did you notice that? Four different words are used... To describe their obedience. First, Torah. Law. The law of God. Literally it means direction. God's law is guidance for our lives. And then we find the word in English, commandments in verse 29. Law. Commandments, which is the Hebrew word mitzvot. Commandments has to do more with authority. That God has not simply given us guidelines. He has given us orders. And then we find the English word rules. Mishpatim is the Hebrew word. and This refers to the decisions of an all-wise judge who knows the human condition. Who knows what you need. And then finally, statutes. A word that conveys the permanence or the binding nature of what God says to his people. You see, there's this full orbed picture that God's people give of what it is that they're committing to. And people of God, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what our hearts need to hear The law of God is not a burden. The law of God is life. The law of God is for our joy. Just think about those four words. We all need and want direction. We need someone to tell us which way to go. We want authority. We want someone who knows what they're talking about when they tell us which way to go. We want a wise Decision maker who knows us, our situation, our frailty, and we want something that's going to last. Something that's so far beyond just the the fads of our times, but something that is true and unchanging. And God's Word gives us these things. The people of Nehemiah remind us of that this morning. In view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that this is for our joy, we are invited to once again commit ourselves to that word, to know it, to love it, to sign on the dotted line, so to speak, making a commitment. You know, we live in a world of legal documents. I could not believe how many papers I signed when we bought our first house. Are you kidding me? Can't we just have one signature at the very end? We live in a world of signatures and yet for many of us, we put our mark on all kinds of documents in our world and yet we are hesitant to make even the simplest commitment when it comes to the Lord when it comes to His work, when it comes to His Word, when it comes to His church. So there's a lot for us to think about this morning through that first truth. Jesus said, if you love Me, you will keep My commands. Well, the rest of our passage has to do with three different areas where this obedience took life and took hands and feet in the life of God's people, and it took some. Um, it, it went into some specific situations, and there are situations that are no less applicable today than they were then. And so, the second thing I want us to think about, kids, here we go. Number two, in view of God's mercy, commit yourself to be distinct. In view of God's mercy. Commit yourself to be distinct. Oh, distinction has always been a call of God's people, as much today as it was then. I read a book. I mentioned this to some of you, not... When? Yesterday I mentioned this to some of you, that I read a book last year called um, The Unlikely Disciple. And it was a book um, written by a Brown University student who knew nothing, at least that's what he said, he knew nothing about the evangelical world. Grew up in a totally godless, um, secular home and was really curious about what was the evangelical world about, specifically that right-wing, conservative portion of the evangelical world. And so this young man transferred from Brown University to Liberty University. In Lynchburg, Virginia, those of you who don't know what Liberty is, it is the university founded by Jerry Falwell, a famous uh, TV uh, preacher and um, uh, moral majority founder, um, real big back in the 80s. Anyway... It's a fascinating book on many different levels. I had read a review about it and wanted to to read it. There are lots of interesting things to think about in terms of how people, obviously it's not, there's a unique niche to the folks at Liberty University, um, but uh, he also makes some pretty broad brush observations just about Christians, um, which are interesting to think about. Anyway... um, One of the things that was interesting in the book, and it was disheartening in the book, was how easy it was, because this young man Kevin was his name, obviously he was out of his element, his profession of faith was all a ruse, there was no reality to it, but how easy it was for him to enter this community and find a pocket of people, of friends, where he felt completely at home. How easy that was for him. And it actually surprised him. Amidst the zealots, amidst the committed, there were plenty who, whose goals in life was, were no different than his goals in life. Whose entertainment was no different than his entertainment. Whose priorities were no different than his. The way they talked about girls was no different than the way he talked and thought about girls. It was sad. Distinction. It's always been our calling and it's something that we find here in this passage. And it begins with marriage. It begins with the issue of marriage. God specifically forbids foreign marriages. Now, this was not a a racial concern. It had nothing to do with a racial concern. What this was, was a religious concern. See, it wasn't as if God didn't want foreigners to turn to him. To leave their false gods behind and to turn to the one true God, Yahweh. No, He wanted that. Ruth the Moabite is an example of that. But the problem is that marriage relationship was not the way and is not the way to bring that about. Because when foreign marriages took place, foreign gods came into the home, and Yahweh was too easily abandoned. So God called His people to be distinct. Now we might ask ourselves, at least I ask, why would this be tempting? Why would it be tempting to marry foreigners? Well, I'm sure there are lots of reasons. One of them, I think, was just the pool is bigger. You've got more options. You've got more potential spouses. And then in a world of arranged marriages and in a world of, of, of deals and social acceptability, there was an easier ability to, to marry up and to climb the ladder, particularly in a, in a Persian empire. In a, in a Persian world, marrying a well-to-do foreigner might be good, might be good for the bottom line. And yet God says, no, you must remain distinct. Now how does this affect us? Well, I think many of us know, many of us uh, believe that yes, the marriage relationship, Paul reiterates this, in the New Testament, that the marriage relationship is not a relationship where a believer and an unbeliever ought to come together. God still calls us to distinction in marriage. I think we know that. I think you believe that. But I guess the challenge I have for us in regard to this, particularly those of us who are young parents, is are we training our children to make this a non-negotiable? Are we giving them a model in their lives that teaches them what it is, what, what is important for them to look for in a spouse? And I think there are some real practical things for us to think about. Are we helping them choose their friends that they might be pointed In this direction, I'm not advocating arranged marriages, at least not in your home. In my home, it's going to (laughs) happen. I'm not advocating, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not advocating arranged marriages, of course, but I'm fearful that at times we can be too hands off when it comes to our kids in regards to this. And so, yeah, God calls us to be distinct. That's the first area we need to move on. There's another area where we're called to be distinct, and real briefly, it has to do with our schedule. It has to do with our schedule. Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Here we go. It's 1110, and now we're going to start talking about the Sabbath. We're going to open up this can of worms don't panic don't panic I don't know what kind of attitudes exist about the Sabbath in this room perhaps many of you are cynical you grew up in homes with oppressive and legalistic rules that governed Sunday some of you grew up in homes where Sunday was no different than any other day. You see, in Nehemiah's day, God's people were confronted with an issue. God had commanded long ago that there was to be this extensive Sabbath system. Every seventh day was Holy, And there were other holy days throughout the year. They were days when normal activities were to be set aside that the Lord might be focused upon. And think about it. That was easy enough for the people of God to do when they're in the wilderness and they're all alone. But now, now they're in the real world. They've been living in Babylon, many of them. They're part of the Persian Empire. I mean, come on, I've got a business here. There is work to be done on this day. And yet still, God calls them to distinction. Distinction in relationship. Distinction in how they use their time. The orderings of their week their schedules well how are we to view this today how are we to view this today the sabbath issue can certainly be a thorny one and i don't want to jump into the deep end of the pool this morning especially at 11:15 but i will say this the sabbath doesn't exist anymore At least not like it did. At least not like it did. See, the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2 makes it clear that the Sabbath and that the holy days that were part of this system were shadows. They were shadows of what was to come in Jesus, the one who would provide rest for our souls. He is the reality to which the Old Testament Sabbath pointed. And so ultimately, keeping the Sabbath is about resting in Jesus. However, however, this one day in seven principle, the foundation upon which the Sabbath requirement was built, that comes not from Mount Sinai. Not from the formation of God's people. No, that comes from the creation of the world. That comes from the very beginning. You see, for our good and for our joy, God set aside one day in seven for us to rest. And so even as Christ fulfilled the picture of the law given through the Sabbath, the rest still exists. The worship, the celebration has simply been moved. And in the New Testament church, we gather now on the first day of the week, to Sunday, to the Lord's day. And now here we are on the Lord's day morning. Now, am I going to give you a list of things that you are prohibited from doing today? I'm not. But I'm going to remind you of these three things. Because Nehemiah reminds you of them. That God owns your time. That God calls you to distinction. And that God has given you a gift in today. He has given you a gift in the Lord's day. It is for your joy. And how you order this day, how you spend this day, is an opportunity for you and for your family to declare these truths or to deny them. I will say that. Just a couple weeks ago, I met with the middle school boys, and we talked. We're talking about heroes of the faith and uh, the, the the hero of our faith. We're talking about modern um, men to look up to. The first one that we began with was a man named Eric Little, the flying Scotsman. I think many of you know who Eric Little was. He had a movie made about him, Chariots of Fire. The theme song is now running through everyone's head. And the beach scene, as they all run down the beach. Eric Little at the 1924 Olympics, because of his conviction about God's call on his life, to be distinct, said he would not run in his best event. Almost a guaranteed goal in the hundred meters. Because it was being run on Sunday. On the Lord's Day. Now whether you agree with Eric Little's theological convictions about the Lord's Day or not, The challenge that he poses, and the challenge that the people of Israel pose, is can we afford to walk in distinction? Can we afford to walk in distinction, even in the face of personal, financial, or career loss? Can we afford it? That's the challenge for us this morning, in view of God's mercy. And, people of God, in view of God's mercy, in view of the gospel, how could we, how could we do otherwise? Well, there's one final challenge for us, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till next week, because I don't want to shortchange this final challenge challenge to us from Nehemiah chapter 10. Kids forgive me, I said three, I meant two. But we'll return next week uh, to this final challenge from Nehemiah 10. Uh, as we think this morning about these first two, which I've spent more time on than I thought, committing ourselves to obedience to that full-orbed view of God's law and committing ourselves to to distinction in these specific areas and in other areas, I would encourage us, those of us who are gathering this week for community groups to to challenge one another, to think, to pray that by God's grace we might be able to commit ourselves to these things in view of God's mercy. We sang a wonderful song at the beginning of our service could not have been more appropriate for us to sing. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite with I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as Thou shalt choose. In view of God's mercy to the one who has bought us at a price, the price of his own son, how could we say anything else? How could we do anything else? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Mercy and grace that provides the backdrop for us to hear your law, to hear your commands which then are not burdensome to us. They are life. They are joy. They are for our good. And so Father, I pray that you would give us your grace as we go from this place to walk in obedience, to walk in in distinction for the glory of Your name. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.